I never met my great-grandfather, at least I don't think. My granny might fact-check me as to whether I met him when I was an infant or something. But I do know that my family, we called him G-Pap. And G-Pap was an officer in the Air Force. And in World War II, he flew missions at one point from, from Brazil to Algiers. But in those days, they didn't have the range and the planes to make that length of a trip. So they had to stop at a tiny island chain about 5,000 miles west of Brazil and 800 miles east of Portugal called the Azores. And that, to me, might not sound like a big deal, but back then, they didn't have GPS. So you had to make sure you had your bearings right. Because if you didn't, if you veered off course a few degrees, well, in a few miles, that might not be that big a deal. But over the course of 5,000 miles, you would find that your fuel was running low, and you're hundreds of miles away from where you were supposed to be with no land in sight. It was very important that they kept the course. And here in Lent, in this season of Lent, we have an opportunity for self-reflection to ask ourselves hard questions. Are we keeping the course? Are we following the way of Jesus that he has laid out for us? Or the more haunting question may be, do we think we're keeping the course and we have no clue that we have lost it long ago, or that we're just a few degrees off, that in the long term may be a very bad thing. And so that's the kind of haunting question that our, that our text asks of us this morning. And so that's what we'll look at in John chapter two, as we read about how Jesus cleared the temple. So if, if we look at the scene there, uh, we see things that were there to help the Jews of Jesus' day keep their bearings about who they were. Uh, this passage opens by saying that the Passover was happening. And the Passover, of course, was the uh, foundational identity formation event for the Jewish people. It's where God delivered them from Egypt. He delivered them from the hands of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said, no, I will not let them go. So God brought death upon Egypt to move Pharaoh's hand. And to avert themselves from that death, the Jewish people had to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood on the doorposts so the death would not come to them as well. And God delivered them out of Egypt and made them his people. And in Jesus' day, thousands of years later, they still remembered that event to help them keep their course as to who they were. And so that's what we see when Jesus goes to the temple. We see that there are animal vendors. And these animal vendors weren't inherently bad. Uh, for the Passover, people came from all over Judea to celebrate in Jerusalem. And if you're parents, I'm sure you know how hard it is just to get your family, get your kids in the car, just to come to church on a Sunday morning, much less to also get packed up for a road trip and bring along your oxen or your lamb or your pigeons. And so these guys helped out a lot by saying, you don't have to bring those yourself, you can get them when you get here. 
And in fact, some people at this point in time probably would have been artisans, so they wouldn't have even owned their own animals in the first place. So these animal vendors aren't inherently bad. And it's the same thing with the money, the tax collectors, with the money changers. So there was a temple tax that everyone had to pay each year, and it had to be paid in a very special coin that you might not have, especially if you traveled from far away. So these guys were there to help you pay that tax in the, in the proper way. And so they were there to help. And all this happened in the temple. The temple was the place where God dwelled. But because humanity back in the days of Adam and Eve had lost its course, had veered off course, humanity can't dwell with God apart from atonement for sin. And so that's why we have the sacrifices there. So we see these things that are the items, the practices in the Jewish culture of Jesus' day that helped them remember who they were, that helped them keep their bearings in the Passover and in the temple. But when Jesus sees these things, he doesn't say, this is perfect, this is just how it's supposed to be. No, that's not what he does. If, If we read, he says he makes a whip, he drives the animals away, he overturns the tables. Why did Jesus do this? Didn't he know he was being divisive? Didn't he know that this was causing problems, not fixing them? Well, one thing I appreciate about Jesus is that he's more emotionally mature and healthy than I am. For, for me, when, when I get angry or when I get mad, sometimes it's about the wrong things. But when it's about the right things, sometimes I don't do anything about it. I'll get all worked up, I might complain to a friend, but not actually try and solve the problem. And Jesus here, I appreciate how he gets mad and he does something about it. Or you might think of how when he sees his friend Mary weeping and grieving over Lazarus, he sees her, he sees Lazarus' dead body, and he does something about it. He raises him from the grave. So Jesus is going to do something about this anger. But why is he angry in the first place? Well, we see it in verse 16 when he says that they've turned my father's house into a house of trade. In essence, the temple had lost sight of its main purpose. It had veered off course and had now been majoring in in the miners. You see, these animal vendors, these money changers weren't inherently bad, but they were getting in the way of the good thing that the temple was supposed to do. It was getting in the way of people encountering God. And this wasn't just because of the smells and sounds of the animals, though for me, I think that would have not put me in a worshipful mood. This was for something far more serious. So if we go back to the first Passover, and if we remember how that happened, the Israelites were not the only people who came out of Egypt. Moses says, it records in Exodus, that a mixed multitude came out with them. The people who, though they were not descendants of Jacob, saw what God was doing and said, I want to be a part of that. And in fact, as Passover continued to be practiced, Moses said, if there's a stranger who's sojourning in your land and they practice Passover with you, 
they would be considered as if they were a native Israelite amongst the people. But where all this business is going on, it was probably going on in the court of the Gentiles, in the outer court. So the way the temple worked is the farther uh, to the innermost part you got, the fewer people could go there. So in the outermost port, portion, it was the court of the Gentiles, to where if you were not a Jewish person, that was as far as you could go, and that was the only place that you could go to worship God. And so by having these animal, changer, these animal vendors and money changers there, they weren't inherently bad, but they were boxing out these people who wanted to encounter God from experiencing the living God and becoming a part of the people of God in the course of the Passover. And that makes Jesus angry. Jesus is zealous for people to encounter God in him. And it grieves him when we lose our bearings and rob ourselves and others of that encounter. And he's so zealous about that that he's willing to bring shame to the institution of the temple. You can think about him raising a ruckus like that. It would have embarrassed people. It would have uh, made them think that uh, Jesus was trying to attack the institution itself. And that's exactly what he was doing. Now for us as a church, for us here at Servants, that should make us wonder, are we doing things in a way that are leading ourselves and others to encounter Christ and his kingdom? Or to pose the question in a harder way, what are we doing that is keeping others, especially those who desire most to encounter God, from encountering God? And to make it even harder, are we benefiting from having it that way? Is it more comfortable for us to do things the way that we are doing them? Now, this is not a fun question to ask. I don't derive any joy of asking it of us. It makes me uncomfortable asking it, especially since I'm so new here. But this is the question that the text has for us today. And I don't know the answer. It's something for us to discern as a body as we go through Lent. But if that's the question, don't worry. There aren't only hard questions for us as a group. There are also hard questions for us as individuals. It's easy for us to lose our own bearings when we seek to encounter God on our own. It's easy for us to try to encounter God through our own effort. So right now in Lent, perhaps some of you may have taken on a practice or tried to give something up. And this is a good means for us to encounter God. But it can be a danger if it just becomes a box to check off that Jesus is not a part of at all. It can become a danger if we think that by doing these things, God will love us more. If by praying or reading our Bible or fasting, that will earn God's grace. If we're doing that, we've veered off course These practices are an opportunity for us to encounter and receive the grace of God. They aren't how we earn it. And so for me, one of the ways that that looked like this past week is 
I sat down in the morning to, to pray and reflect, and I'm sure this never happens to y'all, but I was very stressed and anxious, and my mind was wandering, and I couldn't focus whatsoever. And it would have been easy for me to think, gosh, God, I blew it today. I wasn't here, I didn't see you whatsoever. Had I done that, I would have veered off course, but instead, I started to get down on myself, and then I remembered, God, I am so grateful that you are with me, even when my mind is all over the place. And in that moment, I encountered and experienced the grace of God as I got back on course. But we don't just need religious things to get off course. It's easy to get off course in unreligious things as well. It's easy for me to think that instead of receiving the love and grace of God, that's something I have to earn from other people. And for me, that often looks like I have to be good enough. I have to perform well enough for me to be okay. And when I do that, I'm turning in on myself. I'm not receiving the grace of God. But also, I'm so focused on myself that I don't put myself in a position to look at the other people around me, to be attentive to how God might want to show them grace. And so we as individuals, in our own way that we walk, can drift astray as well. And so the question that we have before us is, have we lost our bearings and how we encounter God personally or how we invite others to encounter God? But here's the frightening thing. We might not even know we've strayed from the path. If we look at this passage, no one was complaining that things were the way that they were. In fact, they only started to complain once Jesus was making changes. Now, when GPAP and his team were flying from Brazil to the Azores, the endless expanse of blue ocean and blue sky could start to blend together. It would be easy for you to be lost and not even know it. You didn't have any natural landmarks to orient you with. He needed a navigator. So my, my GPAP, he didn't flip any tables at the airbase in Brazil, but he did upset his commanding officers because he left on the mission late. He refused to leave until he got the best navigators that he could find. He needed someone who had the compass, who had the maps, who knew the way, who could help him and his team in a way that was far beyond the skill set that he personally could provide. And for us, we, we know the way, right? Like, we read about that in Exodus. We read the Ten Commandments. Like, that's kind of, in some ways, what we're supposed to, to be about, right? But keeping that course is beyond our abilities. In Psalm 19, we read about how good those Ten Commandments are. And then it concludes with the psalmist saying, God, I need your help because I cannot do this on my own. And we look at Paul, he's in an even more dire strait, concluding that he is a wretch. But he rejoices in the hope of Jesus Christ. Though the people did not like the vector change that Jesus was, was pr proposing, they came to him and said, look, who says that this way is right? 
And Jesus said, uh, well, this is the right way because if you destroy this temple in three days, I will rebuild it. And they thought that he was talking about the physical temple and they considered him an idiot. So in their eyes, Jesus himself received shame, not the institution of the temple that had gone astray. And in some ways, that's true for us as well. Because even though we have all messed up just like the people in the temple, losing sight of keeping Jesus at the center of things, ignoring the other people who are desperately trying to encounter God for the sake of our own comfort, even though we too did those things, Jesus does not shame us. Instead, he absorbs our shame in his body when he was destroyed on the cross. And in fact, the way that he absorbed the shame in the temple by letting people think he was an idiot points to exactly how he would absorb our shame on the cross. Because when Jesus is done in the temple, there are no animals left. Only Jesus, the Lamb of God, is there to make our atonement. When Jesus is done, there is no one left to take our atonement tax, to take our temple tax because Jesus has paid the price for us. And Jesus is our temple. He says that he is the place in which we can encounter God. And because his body was destroyed for us, and because we are raised again with him, when we encounter God in the temple of Jesus, it is not an encounter of shame, but an encounter of welcome and love. So Jesus writes our course, but it's still easy for us to go adrift. But it's helpful for us to see how the disciples were able to connect the dots. Two different times in this passage it says they remembered. They looked back on what Jesus did and they remembered. And that's the task for us today as well. It's important for us to remember what Jesus has done, not because in remembering we earn his grace, but in remembering we receive his grace. And that goodness binds our wandering heart to him as we sing about in the first song. And Jesus promised that he would send his Holy Spirit to remind us of all things, to help us guide us in the way. And so that is our hope of of arriving to the end on course, is that Jesus has set our hearts right and day in and day out by his grace and by his Holy Spirit is guiding us in the way, not only so we can receive his grace, but so the other people who desperately want to encounter that grace can receive it as well. So please pray with me. (laughs) Heavenly Father, as we prayed in the collect, you have made us for yourselves and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. God, we acknowledge that we have so many uh, disordered affections, so many ways in which we can go astray. And so we ask that you would so open our eyes to behold your glory And so guide us by your Holy Spirit that remembering the grace you have shown us, we might enter in to your kingdom with you. Uh, We ask all these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.